Jarvis. Welcome home, Well, if it isn't the fancy schmancy Iron Man, you think you're the only superhero on the big screen? Who the hell are you? The other Robert Jr., host of the Crooked Table podcast. I'm here to talk to you about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Welcome to the Crooked Table podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table podcast. This is Rob. Normally on this show, we bring on fans and critics alike to democratize the film criticism conversation, bringing on a different guest every episode to talk about a film that really means something to them or that really resonates with them. This week, we're taking another detour. I know we've been doing a lot of those lately uh, with the Star Wars episode and, and the like, but, you know, Star Wars and Marvel uh, are two franchises that I'm really passionate about and that I've talked a lot about on the show. So more than likely, this will be the final digression, at least for a while. As of this recording, Avengers Endgame is getting ready to hit theaters in a few days. And so I'm looking back on uh, the history of this podcast and how often we've talked about Marvel. I realize that there's a lot of films that I haven't really gone on the record yet, um, either just because I've only done a written review or something like that. So I felt like this was a good chance to even the playing field. I've mentioned before when I did the Shazam episode with Freddy that I've talked about every DCEU movie to date. I even went back and did Man of Steel. So it felt like a good opportunity to go back and uh, do a a kind of a a quick rundown of all the 21 films that have preceded Avengers Endgame, uh, many of which came out before I even started this podcast in 2013. So if you want links to the individual reviews of the shows that we've done in the past, or the written reviews that I've done on on uh, pretty much almost just about every film from Thor The Dark World onward. You can find the links to those at crookedtable.com. If you just want my quick thoughts on uh, all, all the films that Marvel Studios has released to date, you're in the right place. So let's get started in chronological order with Iron Man. Of course, this is the movie that came out in 2008, directed by John Favreau, that really kicked off the entire universe. Uh, the, the audio we played at the beginning, obviously, was kind of a play on the Samuel L. Jackson cameo in the post credit scene of Iron Man that threw the idea out there that maybe, just maybe, they could create a on-screen universe that could bring what we've seen in comics for decades as far as the interconnectedness of all these characters teaming up, going their separate ways, the developing uh, storyline over many, many, many issues and arcs um, to life on the big screen. And this was the first film to throw that out there. And I think even though I'd really like Iron Man, most of that really depends on uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s charisma. And I'm a lot more interested in Tony Stark than I am in Iron Man, per se. Uh, This film also suffers a lot. Like It's got one of the weakest villains, I think, in a lot of the uh, MCU. And the third act is very underwhelming for me. But just because I love Robert Downey Jr. so much, and I think he has such a great performance in this film... And the fact that it kicked off the whole MCU to begin with, uh, I'd still probably rank it not necessarily in the top of the MCU, but definitely in the in the honorable mention territory. Moving on to The Incredible Hulk, came out the same summer as Iron Man. Um, you could tell that they kind of inserted that Robert Downey Jr. cameo at the very tail end of the film, late in the game, just to, to try and follow up the... Uh, the tease of, of the, the Avengers building to that sometime down the line. Of course, Edward Norton was recast with Mark Ruffalo. So a lot of this film really feels kind of outdated and almost obsolete when it comes to the MCU. It wasn't until 2016 when William Hurt came back as General Ross that it added really any kind of relevance aside from 
you know, Mark Ruffalo's uh, offhanded mention of last time I was in New York, I broke Harlem, which is in reference to the climax of The Incredible Hulk. Uh, Louis Leterrier's direction is fine, but it's, it feels more like a substandard kind of uh, 90s action movie than something that really befits the, uh, the the way that the MCU has been pushing the medium forward. Um, so I still enjoy it as kind of a guilty pleasure, but it's definitely among the weakest elements in the MCU. Uh, this this film, uh, just the visual effects are a little off and the story just kind of meanders a little bit much, but they were able to kind of retcon uh, the character by acknowledging the Ang Lee movie a little bit um, and like kind of soft rebooting it into the MCU. Iron Man 2 came out in 2010. This obviously gave them a little bit of time to to nail down their plan. I think before this they had announced Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America, the first Avenger, leading into the Avengers, so the remaining of Phase 1. I think that, that Marvel was able to kind of fine-tune their strategy for uh, building up to Earth's Mightiest Heroes finally coming together. Unfortunately, Iron Man 2 really bears the weight of all of that planning and all that uh, foundation setting with the uh, formal introduction of Nick Fury into the film, into the series, um, Black Widows coming in there, and everything that is trying to establish with Howard Stark and, and Tony Stark's um, history with his family, bringing in Don Cheadle as, um, as Rhodey slash War Machine, who again would be a pivotal later on. And it just there's just way there's like a dozen different storylines going on in this film, half of which do not resonate whatsoever. I do think that the biggest thing that it brought to the table uh, is not necessarily Mickey Rourke as Whiplash because that performance is really strange and feels like it comes from a completely different movie, um, and continues the un- unfortunate trend of every Iron Man villain being a bad version of Iron Man. Uh, but also I, I really like Iron Man 2's big contribution aside from Black Widow is bringing Sam Rockwell and as Justin Hammer. And I'm still almost a decade later, I'm still waiting for him to come back at some point. Hopefully he'll be one of the surprise cameos in Endgame. And then we can see him, uh, playing into, uh, a post Endgame MCU in a little bit, a little bit more, uh, robust fashion. So Iron Man 2 definitely considered one of the weakest. And uh, I kind of agree with that just because it it takes on too much and it's one of the few films that I'm going to talk about in this episode that I think uh, I think struggles from trying to set the stage for multiple films to come. Let's call it let's call it the BVS slash Justice League problem, uh, if you will. Thor came out in 2011, and it's funny to think back on a time when Tom Hiddleston and Chris Hemsworth were essentially nobodies, and nobody knew what to make of them. Nobody knew what to make of this uh, this film. I think my biggest reference point for Thor going, you know, before going into the theater to see this, is uh, Adventures in Babysitting and seeing Vincent D'Onofrio wear the helmet for that uh, for that film is in that uh, kind of smaller role. But um, Thor, I think, found a really interesting way of taking a fantastical premise and rooting it in sci-fi and connecting it to uh, a more grounded reality and uh, weaving in the uh, the other elements of this series thus far, like S.H.I.E.L.D. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, Natalie Portman doesn't have uh, enough to do, in my opinion. I feel like she's really weighed down. Like, she's a, a tremendously ta- talented actress, and I love her in Black Swan. And But in movies like the Thor films and the Star Wars films, I feel like she's so lost and made everything that it's really not playing to her strengths. Hemsworth, of course, is great in it. Um, Hiddleston, I feel like, was definitely the breakout of this film. 
and establish why Loki has is still considered the you know the go-to MCU villain. The movie does feel a little contained in that I know this is one of the main criticisms, but that it is basically set in uh, basically set in a small town in New Mexico. This was obviously before um, the MCU really embraced green screens to full capacity where everything was being shot in a warehouse in Atlanta, basically. And uh, you know that there are certain there's a certain tangibility to Thor that I, I think it helps it work as well as it does. The fish out of water stuff is mostly mostly fun um but more more than anything i feel like it's a it's a solid though unspectacular origin story that uh, pulls off the main thing that it needed to do which is make thor seem like a compelling character on screen and have audiences invested in the world of asgard and where the series will take it going forward Captain America, the first Avenger, came out, and I was a fan of Chris Evans from Fantastic Four movies, even though those movies are not great. I always thought he was great in them. And a lot of people really stand the first Avenger and think it's one of the best uh, MCU entries in general. I'm not quite there with them. I do think it's a really solid uh, period piece. I, I, I think that Haley Atwell is, is probably still still one of the best um, MCU female heroes that we've seen, superpowered or not. Um, I, I like the aesthetic that they're going for with the the uh, the man out of time elements of it. I think that Joe Johnston is is a great pick for this uh, kind of storytelling, and it 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 does the job of bringing Captain America to the big screen in a way that in a way similar to Kenneth Branagh did with Thor. That character was kind of a joke to non comic book fans, and nobody really took them seriously. And I think Captain America finds a really smart way to. Uh, make him relevant by by having him sort of function as a propaganda piece in the in the context of the story itself and leading that into the modern day. And I think that um, you know the film successfully accomplishes everything it needs to do as far as Captain America is concerned, as far as as why he's the moral ground. Uh, moral center, rather, of the the series to date, which is why the the uh, so many so much speculation regarding whether or not he's going to survive Endgame is really heart wrenching because he has he has probably the purest heart of everyone uh, in this series. So I think the first Avenger does a good job of getting that across, creating an uh, an interesting villain with MCU, and really giving our first proper introduction to um, one of the Infinity Stones with the Tesseract and uh, or the Cosmic Cube and. I finally followed up on the Red Skull uh, disappearance later in the series, but um, it's definitely the earliest as far as timeline is concerned and uh, does a good job of, of uh, making Steve Rogers a compelling big screen hero. The Avengers came out in May 2012, and... It's it's not it's not an understatement to say that this was a major turning point for modern cinema. Not because the film is the best ever made, not because uh, it did break so many box office records at the time, uh, but because it cemented the fact that you could do shared universe franchises on the big screen. This hadn't really been done since I don't know the Universal Monsters era, uh, at least not on this scale. And I, I you know. Uh, there's a lot to a lot of criticisms I could lob at this movie that it some of the direction is sort of underwhelming and some of the characters are really underserved. Looking at you, Hawkeye, but the fact that Joss Whedon, who wrote and directed this, 
coming off of things like Buffy and, and Firefly and Dollhouse, which I was a big, big fan of during its two-season run, the fact that he was able to take these four, let's, the four primary heroes in Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, and the Hulk, all of whom had have at least one previous movie, and, and bring all those threads together in a compelling way that felt like it served all of the characters' arcs, and uh, while introducing Black Widow and Hawkeye uh, to the dynamic as well and delving deeper into who they are, using Loki and the history that we had with that character to fuel the story forward. The fact that it was able to do all that and create these these moments that comic book fans and geeks alike had really fantasized seeing on the big screen forever, seeing Iron Man shooting uh, his, you know, blasting off of Captain America's shield or seeing what would happen if these different characters, all these different uh you know, heroes faced off against each other. I, I think that Joss Whedon found the perfect balance of having everyone team up and having everyone clash in, in just the right ways as far as, uh, far as combat is concerned, but as far as uh, verbal sparring as well. Some of my favorite scenes in that movie are aboard the helicarrier when the team is just arguing the whole, oh, you know, um, big man in a suit of armor, take that away, what are you? Though that All that stuff that, that really plants the seeds for the conflict, between Iron Man and Captain America that has fueled everything that has come since, Civil War, Infinity War, everything in, for both of those characters really begins here. And the fact that, you know, Battle of New York, I think, is still one of the best superhero set pieces um, in, in any movie uh, before or since. So I have to hand it to the Avengers just because the writing is so tight and it was the culmination, at least up to that point, of everything that at MCU, the MCU had been building towards. When Iron Man 3 came out, hype was at an all-time high for the MCU. The Avengers had just come out the year before and blew the doors off of everything. And it had been a full year since the Avengers hit theaters. So needless to say, Iron Man 3, whether you love it or hate it, I know it's one of the most divisive films in the MCU... Um, it, it definitely got enjoyed the post-Avengers bump, where it's, I think, one of the only solo films in the MCU to make over a billion dollars. Um, and I, I can understand why a lot of people feel very conflicted about this film, because it does feel a lot more like a Shane Black movie, uh, writer-director of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is an amazing movie, um, and he'd collaborated with Robert Downey Jr. previously on that. And uh, it, it does feel like a lot more of a, like a Shane Black movie than a Marvel movie in a lot of ways. And in some respects, I actually love that because, I, as I mentioned, I love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I think Shane Black can really make really impressive films. He did The Nice Guys after this uh, and The Predator, which we won't talk about that. But um, he did The Nice Guys after this, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang before it. And so he has a very specific voice. And Iron Man 3 does not feel like Iron Man 1 or Iron Man 2. I think that's to its benefit, honestly. And if you look at the Marvel sequels, and I talk about this a little bit on uh, on a podcast I did around the time Guardians 2 came out, the third one is always really switching things up. The first one sets the tone, the second one deepens it, and the third one like basically starts fresh. And I like the fact that Iron Man 3 focuses much more on Tony Stark than it does Iron Man himself. Uh, the Mandarin twist didn't really bother me since I don't really have any specific connection to that character. I did feel like um, some of the some of the stuff with uh, Killian and the extremist thing. Some of it got a little a little overblown. Um, so it's not one of my favorite films in the MCU. Uh, I think it's it's leagues better than Iron Man two, but it still falls short from, for the uh, from the original film, the original Iron Man film rather. 
And uh, I, I like it, but it, it's just, I don't know, for some reason, it's never really stuck with me the same way. I feel like maybe because so much of the arc, <laughs> pun intended, of Iron Man is is undone. In the ba- basically, in the end, he has like 40 suits that he blows up. For, no spoilers, I guess. <laughs> that he blows up. Uh, and then only to don and, and you build more suits in Age of Ultron. He has this surgery to get the, uh, the fragments of uh, shrapnel removed from his chest that he could have done right after Iron Man. So I don't understand the point of that is. I guess he stopped torturing himself for what had happened and, and tried to start um, to perpetuate himself forward. But the problem with Iron Man and Tony Stark is that his development has always kind of been cyclical. He changes a lot in Iron Man and, and from Iron Man to the Avengers. But in Iron Man 2, they're basically circling the same arc from Iron Man 1. In Iron Man 3 and Civil War and Age of Ultron, it's just kind of the self-destructive cycle that he's stuck in. So it doesn't really feel like he's been allowed to have a more lateral character development over these films. And I think that's really, for me, part of where Iron Man 3 suffers. When Thor The Dark World came out in late 2013, this was actually the first one that I was uh, able to cover on CrookedTable.com, then revamped at that point, CrookedTable.com. I did a written review there, and there I basically say it's fine. I mean, and I I, I still kind of stand by that six years later. Uh, I actually think the original Thor is better than this one. This one... um, it does nice follow through from the Avengers with Loki coming back to suffer the consequences in Asgard, although that's kind of short-lived. I already mentioned with the original Thor that I think Natalie Portman is really has not much to do in these films. And this one leads even more into the her wacky sidekicks, Stellan Skarsgård and uh, Kat Dennings, neither of whom I really find that interesting or compelling. I actually feel like Ragnarok flushed a lot of the uh, unnecessarily unnecessary weight from the Dark World. I know that some people, like I'm listening to Blank Check podcast right now, they're doing a commentary on that, and they really like the Dark World. And I, I, I don't know, I just don't see it. I mean, I understand like certain elements of Asgard's mythology; it really de- delves into that, but it, it still just feels kind of flat. Uh, Rene Russo has a little more to do here, and that's great. The Loki stuff is all always great. Loki's always great in everything, so I don't have a, an issue with that. But the villain is terrible. The MacGuffin. Uh, and which is again another Infinity Stone. That's actually the, only the second one we've seen up to this point, um, and and that was all very murky. It makes for kind of a fun um, third act twist when they're, uh, or not twist, but um, third act device for when they're flopping through different uh, dimensions, different realms. So that's kind of fun visually. But other than that, there's a lot of style, not a lot of substance to Thor: The Dark World, unfortunately. So I'd put this in there with Hulk. And Iron Man 2 is probably one of my weakest links in the MCU. Which is even that much more impressive when you consider that the next year, Captain America the Winter Soldier came out. That is by far in my top five for the MCU, like easily among the best ones that they've ever done. Took Chris Evans' character, who was, again, like I said, kind of a joke before the first Avenger and and the Avengers. Um, this one really legitimized him and made him feel like a badass modern action hero, like almost John Wick wearing a, a <laughs> you know American flag on his chest. And uh, I, I had a really great conversation with about this film with Zach Matthews of the Proper Gentleman podcast. You can listen to that uh, in the feed. And um, the Russos came into this. Joe and Anthony Rousseau came onto this one, which obviously they've been delivering amazingly solid work since this film. But it has a certain um, a certain visceralness to. I don't even know if viscerosity. I don't know. <laughs> visceral feel to the action scenes in this film. Uh, Chris Evans' performance is much better. The villains, uh, Hydra, actually feels much more grounded in it, and it has a way 
it has a commentary, social commentary on, uh, you know, the government and politics and and uh, the power struggle that goes on there as far as with freedom and how much you're willing to sacrifice of your morals for the, quote, greater good. Um, Samuel L. Jackson has a much bigger role here, his own action sequence, essentially. And I think it uses Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow expertly, probably better than just about any other film in this franchise, aside from maybe the Avengers, I'd say these two, those two are are neck and neck for um, using her in the right way. Brings back Sebastian Stan in a compelling way, tying back to Cap's journey and making so sure that everything that happens in this film is personal to him. So that really works, and I love the fact that we also get Anthony Mackie. Like, there's so many strong additions that the Winter Soldier brings to the forefront, not only visually, but as far as storytelling. You had uh, Marcus and McFeely working on this, who did the first Avenger and then stuck with the Russos for all of their films after this point. So Winter Soldier 100% still holds up as one of the best MCU films thus far. And as I mentioned in a recent tweet, definitely Captain America's Finest Hour. If there's one film where I really diverge from the uh, popular opinion on the MCU, it's Guardians of the Galaxy. Freddie and I actually hashed this out on one of the first episodes of the podcast, uh, episode one, actually, The Fandom Menace, and I did a written review as well. I really like the the characters, the team themselves, but I don't really like, I don't really find anything they're doing in this film particularly compelling. Um, the villain, again, this is an, an issue that Thor the Dark World had. I don't really care about Ronan the Accuser. I don't really care about uh, the, the orb, which ends up being the Power Stone. Uh, or Xandar or anything so like that. It doesn't. It creates a world, but not. A, but it doesn't make me care about that world. The only really uh, masterful stroke here is Peter Quill's story and really anchoring it with his trauma from losing his mom as a child and and how how he's basically been stuck in a in a man child mode ever since and in his in his own little version he like basically got sucked into Star Wars like a sci fi fantasy world where he's a super badass. Uh, um, outlaw. So I, I love the characters, but it felt to me like it was like it was it was lacking in uh, in that hook of the story to really to really bring me in. And I've said this on the podcast before that superhero sequels tend to be uh, much for me at least much better than the originals, just because there's so much ground setting that has to be done. Unless you're Batman or Superman or Spider Man, there's so much ground setting that has to be done as far as who this person is and what their power set is and why they do what they do and and you know where they what their mission is in life and things like that. And I think the Guardians of the Galaxy spend so much time just trying trying to bring these five characters together that it doesn't make at least me it doesn't really make me give me a reason to care about their journey. Uh, thankfully, that would change in Volume Two, but we'll get there in a little bit. I mentioned earlier that some of the MCU films are so weighed down by trying to prep the audience for everything that's they're about to experience in the next year or two. And that definitely holds true for Avengers Age of Ultron. I did a written review for the site when the film came out. And while there's a lot of interesting things to be had here, there's a lot of there's there's some great visual, uh, some great action sequences involving um, involving the team fighting, you know, hordes of giant robots. And Hawkeye has a lot a lot of the best lines and the best moments in the film. And we learn more about his family life as it turns out. Uh, but you know, like I said, there's so much that all of a sudden comes out of nowhere. They're running around tracking down Hydra bases, which is not keyed up whatsoever. There is, um, uh, oh, wow, the Maximoff twins. Uh, and I think that they've done better with 
Scarlet Witch since then. But there, there's the Ultron program that we've never heard of before that they they develop. Vision kind of comes to, like, so much happens so fast. Bringing the Infinity Stones to the Avengers' attention and uh, having Thor go on his little Vision quest. All of that, the, the, the Black Widow, Hulk romance, so much in here just felt like it was reaching for something that nobody really wanted, that nobody really wanted to see, um, at least not at this point, play out the way that it did. So I, I think it's not a terrible movie, but you could tell at that point that Joss Whedon, Kevin Feige were starting to butt heads as far as what their visions were. And you can tell that Joss Whedon at that point was so exhausted and over it that his actual voice feels like it's sapped out of a lot of this film. So I think that's unfortunate, but that's the way it ended up playing out. Ant-Man was the follow-up there in the conclusion of uh, Phase 2, whereas Phase 1 ended with the Avengers. And this film, I feel like, is symptomatic of many of the things that people accuse of being the Marvel formula. formula uh, very bland, just power-hungry villain, check. Very kind of rote origin story, check. Uh, interesting visuals and fun, you know, Oscar-winning and nominated uh, performers in supporting roles, check. But, uh, you know, sort of a, a a lack of direction, I think. And this was, again, like Guardians, a film that I think laid the groundwork for what could be built upon the Ant-Man universe or this corner of the universe, but didn't really didn't really create anything particularly memorable with it. But that being said, I think Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Michael Douglas... All did great, and like Guardians, it set the stage for a sequel that I found to be much superior than the original. But again, we'll have to wait till later in the episode to get there. Spoilers for the rest of this conversation, but Phase 3, I think, has been by far the most successful of the Marvel Cinematic Universe to date. I think part of that is because we've seen a significant increase in the number of films. Now we're at basically three films a year the last few years or so. And a much better understanding of what they want this this franchise to be, where they're headed, and a lot more confidence to take chances and take on interesting directors and uh, writers and voices to diversify uh, the output that we're seeing. And I think we're really seeing that in the last year or two, um, but we'll get there in a second. So let's move into phase three, which I think has probably the highest... Uh, percentage of the best that the MCU has to offer. So it kicked off in 2016 with Captain America Civil War, which is the third Captain America film and the culmination of the tension between Iron Man and Captain America that we witnessed back in the Avengers when they met. And the the Russos are back here with Marcus and McFeely. I already mentioned them from Winter Soldier. So the same team from Winter Soldier. And yet somehow the film feels like Avengers 2.5, but also a proper Captain America 3, um, it, which is in, in impressive to me. This film really shows that the Russos have a, a and their screenwriters, Marcus uh, and McFeely, have a really deft hand at taking over a dozen characters and and using them just the right amount. Like You, you don't get a huge amount of screen time with m- many of the characters outside of Cap and Iron Man, um, but... It, what, when they are there, it counts it, and it taps into it doesn't they don't waste any time explaining uh, story points or developing, you know, relationships. We all we know all that stuff exists. And so they are able to reference it in, in, in a very concise way that keeps the story moving forward and stays true to those characters. Uh, I also really love the Zemo twist. 
um, the big reveal at the end that ties Cap and Iron Man and Winter Soldier all together. I think that, it, which I believe has no precedent in the comics, which is makes it even blowing my mind even more. Um, Civil War, I could see, I know, I understand how some people feel like, well, the color palette is kind of muted and things like that. And like, yeah, that's that's all true. There are there are things to be there are you know criticisms to a lot, but this one as well. Uh, I think the fact the way that it brings in Spider Man. Uh, kind of out of nowhere, Queens. They're like, well, why is he going to Queens? What the hell? How does he just, he just seen the other Spider-Man movies? How does he know where Peter Parker is and that he has his powers? Um, that's a little ham-handed, but I think at that point, everybody's just so happy to have Captain America, uh, you know, have Spider-Man into the Captain America movie to begin with. So Black Panther, of course, was introduced. So I can go on and on talking about Civil War, and maybe one day I'll, I'll delve into uh, a much longer conversation about that. Uh, especially since on the podcast I uh, I did written reviews of Age of Ultron, Ant Man, and this one I didn't really talk about much at all. Just a brief mention in my best of the year because it did warrant inclusion in that. Later in 2016, we got Doctor Strange with Scott Derrickson directing, um, and I really like this film, but I do understand and I actually kind of agree with the fact that it does feel very much like an Iron Man light. The the arrogant accomplished rich guy whose whole world falls apart because he endures some kind of trauma. In Iron Man, he is kidnapped and uh, has the shrapnel in his heart and has to escape and reckons with the sins of the past of his father and his company and what they've been doing for all these years and all that. In this one, Dr. Stephen Strange gets in a car accident, loses his hands and tries to come back from that. But I love all the metaphysical and spiritual elements of this film. Um, the it gives the film it gives Derrickson and his team a lot of interesting leeway to explore uh, a side of the universe that we haven't seen at all as far as mysticism and magic. Tilda Swinton is tremendous as the Ancient One, although I still think that she could have had a little more to do. She just kind of uh, she she does have uh, sparse screen time considering they have Oscar winner. Tilda Swinton on hand. I, I feel like Maz Mickelson as the character whose name I can't even remember off the top of my head, which should go to show you how not memorable he is. Uh, not, oh man, I wish I could remember. But uh, he's not particularly compelling. I think Chiwetel Ejiofor ha- has a much a richer path ahead of him, basically taking the Loki route of being uh, an ally slash anti-hero whatever for part of the film leading into them becoming a full-fledged villain in the future uh rachel mcadams unfortunately has nothing to do here so there's a lot of i have a lot of quibbles with dr strange there's a lot of issues i i have with it but for the most part i feel like it's a classic guardians ant-man trajectory that the sequel will come out and blow my mind uh and really impress me in the way that dr strange already has in infinity war but we're getting ahead of ourselves i was not prepared when Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 came out, because I thought the first film was fine. And I was excited to see what came next, but I wasn't one of those people that was like, Guardians is amazing, this is my Star Wars. I am Groot. And I was like, yeah, okay. I mean, that's, yeah, Groot's kind of cute, whatever. But then Guardians 2 came out. Not only is Groot a baby, and therefore much more interesting for me uh, on screen, has the, the, one of the best opening sequences in, in any Marvel movie, uh, set to Mr. Blue Sky, and Kurt Russell coming in as the villain uh, with a much more personal tie to Peter Quill than Ronan the Accuser, some Cree who Cree reaction or revolutionary who's trying to, you know, conquer Xandar and all that. That was not interesting to me in the slightest, but Peter Quill fighting uh, or facing off against his father and having everything he's ever wanted handed to him, but in the worst possible way, 
uh, his developing relationship with Gamora, which all of a sudden somehow became like the one couple that I'm like really behind in the MCU, even though I think Peter Quill on his own is kind of, uh, kind of irritating in, in large quantities. Um, Rocket became much more interesting. Michael Rooker developed, had delivered one of the, the best supporting uh, performances of any in the MCU. The, uh, the, the story was much richer. The music was much more surprising. I think the, the first film, I think leans on, I I was more familiar with more songs than the first one, but the second one, like every song in this film now, anytime I hear them, it's going to be tied to this, not other things. Plus guardians, you know what I mean? And, uh, volume two just hit me in such an emotional way where I did get emotional or not only tear up, but like, yeah, in the end with Yondu, obviously, but also throughout it, there are little touches and little, uh, little bits of messaging throughout the film that is just so like compassionate and full of heart, which is why I was so pissed when the whole James Gunn thing happened with volume three, uh, where he got fired and then thankfully was brought back on because I think he has changed a lot as a person from when he made all those really distasteful jokes on Twitter. And I really want to see his conclusion of the story. I think he cre- he's created something really special with these movies. Um, and I wasn't fully on board with the first one, but the second one really, really brought me in. So I'm hoping that volume three will deliver on the promise that we've seen in this one. And uh, even if it takes it in a different direction, a la Ragnarok, which we'll get to in a bit, Iron Man three and and some of the other and Captain America Civil War that it stays true to the uh, the emotionality that this movie had and and was able to really capture my my love for the Guardians. Spider Man Homecoming. So I did an episode about this with Freddie on the podcast, and um, I, I really like Spider Man Homecoming, but I don't love it. There's a lot of people that that really hardcore defend uh, Tom Holland's Peter Parker as the the best you know the best best big screen Spider-Man we've ever had and I can see that as far as casting is concerned but this film to me it, it's not the best MCU that year I actually think it's the weakest of the three MCU movies we got in 2017 the last of which we'll talk about in a minute um, it's not the best Spider-Man movie it's like it's basically middling for me I think it's my fourth favorite Spider-Man movie after Spider-Man Two Into the Spider Verse the original Spider-Man and then Homecoming um, I I just feel like it, it's not quite bogged down in the same way that Age of Ultron is as far as setting up other films. But it very clearly is a bridge from Civil War to Infinity War as far as bringing Tony Stark into it, setting up uh, his relationship with Pepper at the end. And and I, I think that hopefully Far From Home will improve upon some elements of that, although the fact that it looks like Nick Fury is really stepping into the mentor role, I don't know if I... It just it, it seems, feels hard for me to see this Spider-Man is really standing on his own. A lot of these other heroes, they have their journeys, but it feels like Spider-Man in, in these movies, at least to date, is always having his hand held by someone else, usually Iron Man. And I'm really hoping that at some point they'll cut that out and let Spider-Man actually be the driving force in a Spider-Man movie. I think that the you know we understand that he's a new hero and he's learning about all of this stuff. But by the same token, I, I don't want to see his personal story be constantly undermined by the greater MCU by having Iron Man pop in there and like, oh, this is a reference to the Avengers. And look, they're selling Avengers Tower. And look, Nick Fury needs his help for this other thing. And look, blah, 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 blah. You know, I think that works in Civil War. And that was how he was introduced in that film uh, as part of it as an extension of Tony Stark. 
and Iron Man and being like his kind of his basically protege. But I want to see Peter Parker be do his own thing. I don't want to see him have to be like a junior Avenger constantly. So I, I don't know when that's going to happen that we're going to move on from that. But I, I'd like to see this is one of the rare cases in that I'm like, all right, cut cut the cord and let Spider-Man do his thing. Why are we constantly cramming in other people from the MCU? So hopefully that'll happen soon. Maybe Far From Home will start downgrading that. And then by the third movie, I guess, we'll get like a true Spider-Man film. But um, this this film actually worked much more when it was being a Peter Parker, like John Hughes-inspired high school comedy uh, coming-of-age story than it was as a Spider-Man movie in a, in a really weird way. So uh, that's unfortunate. But, you know, it is a good movie. It's just... It's not one that that really draws me in. I tried to start. I started watching it again in lieu of the build up to or in the build up to Endgame, and just was just not really compelled to finish it because I've seen it before, and I'm like, eh, it's there's nothing. I don't. I've seen it. It's not that big a deal. I'm I'm good. In complete contrast to Spider Man, Thor Ragnarok with Taika Waititi at the helm is the probably the best example of. Uh, well, up to this point, I'd say probably the best example, other than maybe James Gunn, of uh, Marvel taking a chance on a really out of the box filmmaker whose previous movie was What We Do in the Shadows, I believe, or no, um, uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, both of which are great movies and both of which you should see if you have not. So really taking a, a very distinctive voice and kind of letting him run wild because Ragnarok does not feel like either of the Thor movies before it. And considering how Thor The Dark World deepened the mythology but lessened the impact of Thor's corner of the MCU. I think Ragnarok really blew it up in, in great, literally in great fashion. Um, Tessa Thompson's edition was, was superb, um, bringing Mark Ruffalo's Bruce Banner and giving us kind of a Planet Hulk movie tied into this uh, was a smart way of, of having this basically feel like the other side of the coin to Civil War by having the other uh, you know two original Avengers coming into play and showing what they've been up to and really also leading into infinity war in the same way that civil war does. Um, the comedy I think is really strong in this film. I feel like the action is, is really, uh, you know, light and, and, uh, fast paced. The use of immigrant song is fantastic. Jeff Goldblum. Um, the, the visuals are very psychedelic. The score is, is one of the best that we've seen. I think it's Mark Mothersbaugh. It's a very, it's a very, intentionally outrageous film in the MCU. And yeah, I, I do feel, I know some people think that, you know, that all the humor, especially Korg's line at the end when Asgard explodes, spoilers, um, undercuts a lot of the, you know, the resonance that those kind of, those pivotal moments would have otherwise. However, you know, I, I think did really the, either of the other Thors really connect with you emotionally in that, in that much of a, in that that strongly aside from maybe Loki screaming at Odin in the first movie and things like that uh, I, I think it was a, a decent trade-off plus Kate Blanchett as Hella you can't go wrong with that uh, she, she's outstanding and I hope to see more of uh, Waititi's take on the MCU I know recently Tessa Thompson mentioned that uh, a Thor 4 had been pitched I don't want them to do a Thor 4 in air quotes because I like the idea that the MCU is constantly evolving by having a three-and-done mentality where three Iron Man movies, moving on. Three Captain America movies, moving on. Um, three Thor movies, moving on. So how how the pitch that I've been kind of throwing out there and hoping that someone in the ether will hear or, or make it a thing is that after Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, 
which now we have Gay James Gunn back to write and direct that, that they will mash up Guardians of the Galaxy with Taika Waititi's version of Thor and give us, I know there's a comic book that's completely unrelated other than in name only, give us as Guardians of the Galaxy or some version of that. I think that uh, Infinity War really established that Thor has wonderful rapport with Rocket, with Groot, with actually the most of the Guardians. So hopefully they'll pick and choose. Maybe they, the uh, James Gunn film, Volume 3, can tie off uh, Star-Lord's journey and um, maybe Gamora as well, even though I really want to see more Gamora. So I, I don't know how we can make that happen, maybe an A-Force or something. But, um, you know, have maybe Thor and Valkyrie and rocket and Groot and mantis and drax or something some combination of whoever's left i guess after endgame uh to keep this particular uh offbeat aesthetic for the cosmic side of the mcu alive because i think that really works in both the guardians movies especially volume two and ragnarok and i think they can there's a lot more stories to tell there so hopefully kevin feige and and the people the powers that be at marvel studios will make that happen I knew basically nothing about Black Panther before he was introduced in Captain America Civil War. So I, while I was excited to see Black Panther, the film directed written and written or co-written, I believe, uh, and directed by Ryan Coogler, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't super hyped for it just because I was like, OK, this is a new character. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. I don't know what to expect from this. So my expectations were, you know, high but not like like they are for endgame we're like oh my god story's gonna pay off uh this is the beginning of the creation of wakanda on screen and and like nothing we'd seen before but because of that i didn't really have any any baggage i was bringing other than "Hmm, let's see what black panther's world is like and i cannot tell you how surprised i was by how much i loved black panther this is probably uh, this is i alternate between a few other ones but this is probably my favorite mcu movie and I, I don't even know how that how I can say that because I love some of the other ones so much. But everything in this film, from its vision of Afrofuturism to its commentary on uh, the Black experience today and over the you know over the years and all the everything that that comes with that, it, it is is astounding to me. I feel like this is the first MCU movie that really has something to say, that has some relevance to our world, aside from, you know, Captain America Winter Soldier being kind of influenced by politics, and but that's kind of a vague political thriller. This is saying something very specific and being like, hey, you know how this race of people has suffered? What if this happened? Is it right for a nation to keep to themselves, to avoid being affected by the evils of the outside world, or do they have a responsibility to help their fellow man, to create more of a community among nations? I think these are the kinds of questions that we're seeing now more than ever with uh, with the current administration and all these you know, accusations of xenophobia being flown around. This is something that is a very pertinent topic. Should Wakanda keep their technology and their knowledge to themselves, or do they have to take accountability for any inaction that they take going forward. And I think T'Challa's role coming into this very pivotal point in his country's history, ascending to his father's position as king, and 
discovering this dark secret from his father's past, and maybe his father wasn't the person he thought he was. Yes, a lot of this thematically ties into Thor Ragnarok with, oh, my dad was did this evil thing, and now I'm paying for it, and now this family relationship that I didn't even know existed is coming back to rear its ugly head. On paper, it does have very similar to Thor Ragnarok, but this one has the dramatic heft behind it. It has Chadwick Boseman's sort of uh, regal presence. It has... Michael B. Jordan's outstanding performance, and I think he should have been Oscar-nominated as Killmonger, again, one of the best MCU villains. If you put if you put in all these films in a row, Ragnarok, Black Panther, and then Infinity War, which we'll talk about in a minute, these are, other than Loki, probably some of the best villains, well, not even other than Loki, in the conversation with Loki as some of the best villains we've seen on screen, because we understand where they're coming from. We understand where Hela is coming from. Oh, I'm doing all this all this evil for my dad and we're totally cool. We're working together and then all of a sudden he's going to lock me up because he's had a change of heart. Uh, Black Panther. Killmonger has seen the suffering out there. He's witnessed it. He's been a part of that world and now he discovers that there's a whole country full of people just like him who are keeping themselves and deciding, yeah, that doesn't involve us. We're going to do our own thing. Of course, you understand where he's coming from. And you almost you almost take his side if he wasn't so overtly evil, strangling old older ladies by the neck and, and uh, you know, being so malicious about everything. You kind of see his point, even though, yeah, worldwide war, maybe not the best idea. That That's part of what makes Black Panther so, so powerful. Ludwig Gorenson's score probably my most listened to of 2018 um the the costumes the the sets like the well sets and and cg extensions of sets but all of that it makes this culture feel real and this is something that i didn't feel like that that uh connection as far as this feels like a real place with uh asgard in any of three movies with uh not to go to the other side of the street but themyscira and wonder woman none of these places feel as real as as wakanda does because there is a culture behind it we understand their their belief systems their traditions their 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 way of life and the and their philosophy like no other superhero film has has captured before um, you know, just the, everything about this film works for me, uh, I, for the most part. There are certain moments with the CG, especially in the third act, that I think are a little, a little wonky. There's some, you know, obviously predictable elements involved. We know that T'Challa is going to rise up and, and uh, be there for the final battle and, and the end of the movie and all of that. Um, but there's so much great stuff here. I didn't even mention Letitia Wright or Denai Guerrera. Or Lupita Nyong'o, the th- three of which, all of which are are basically the MVPs of this movie. Especially Letitia Wright and Denai Guerrero, who this was their big breakthrough performance on performance on the big screen in this film. Uh, Andy Serkis is so, so much fun as Ulysses Claw. Wish we had more of him. Martin Freeman, Angela Bassett, Forrest Whitaker. Just can't gush enough about Black Panther. So it, it's one of those cases again where. The first, this film was really solid and really amazing and blew my socks off. So now that when the sequel's coming out, you can better believe that I'm coming in with the uh, adequate amount of hype. We're really at that point in the MCU here where I've covered a lot of these on, on episodes. I, I just mentioned Black Panther, which we have a whole episode about. Ragnarok, Homecoming, uh, Guardians 2, sort of. It was like a, there was an extended conversation there involving Marvel sequels. So now it's kind of winding down. I feel like this conversation is sort of winding down in a way. Just because you want to hear my thoughts, you can listen to over an hour of my own thoughts. And I think that really holds true for the next 
for the next film specifically. So Avengers Infinity War, what can I say about this film that hasn't been said? It, it balances the ensemble of uh, Civil War and then some uh, with such expert expert care uh Everything feels like it's playing off of what has come before, as I mentioned. Uh, Thanos' storyline is well, very well handled. We understand where he's coming from, even if, again, like Killmonger, we disagree. Gamora is probably the MVP of this movie, and it really jumps off of how I, uh, I came to care about Star-Lord and Gamora as a couple in Guardians 2. Uh, and of course, it left everyone hanging with that tremendous cliffhanger, which now we're going to see the fallout of an endgame. So I don't really have that that much to say about Infinity War. It's probably, again, one of my favorites up there with Black Panther, Civil War, Winter Soldier. So the only thing I really have left to say about Infinity War at this point is I just can't wait to see what happens next. The, the Russos pulled off the impossible here, one-upping the original Avengers as far as having everything feel like a game-changer and a culmination of everything that came before. And this was the 19th movie. So the fact that they were able to pack that much in there and create uh, compelling subplots for people like Wanda and Vision, whose love story is very key to the, the climax of this movie, and yet I completely bought into it, Other than, aside from the fact we've only had a couple scenes of them as a couple, really. Uh, I think it, it, there's so many amazing things that they pulled off here. So I just really excited, I'm just really excited to see how Endgame concludes that and whether it, it manages to be even better than this film. And based on what I'm hearing from early reactions, it definitely is. Ant-Man and the Wasp really dovetailed off of... The Guardians 2 model, I keep saying this, but the Guardians 2 model of, all right, you saw the first one, it was cool, now we're going to really have fun with these characters, this premise, and so Ant-Man and the Wasp was a total blast. I, I, I think it was a vast improvement of the original film in pretty much every way. Evangeline Lilly kicks so much ass as the Wasp, and I was a fan of her since Lost. Um, the fact that this film doesn't really have a... a unsympathetic villain we get ghost but even she is more of a thorn in in their sides than anything else it's really her plus walton goggins plus you know just time because they're trying to rescue michelle pfeiffer who joins the cast here as janet van dyne there there is so much stuffed into this movie and i mean that in a great way they're like there's a lot of different elements. It doesn't yet. It doesn't feel overwhelming. It's light. It's breezy. It's fun. It's exactly the palate cleanser we needed after Infinity War, um, and it has a lot of a lot of. Uh, it toys a lot with the. Uh, he's big. He's small. Now he's big in certain some ways and also small in other ways. Now he's like, and, and with the proportions of it all. And so I had so much fun with this movie, and I'm really excited to see Ant Man three. I hope they make. I know it hasn't really been announced or confirmed or when everything. But considering that they tend to do trilogies, I I really hope that we see a third one now after this. And, uh, you know, that mid-credits scene really set Scott Lang up for whatever happens in Endgame. So, again, I can't wait to see how that plays out. Peyton Reed did a tremendous job with both of these movies. But you could tell with this one that he was a lot more confident coming into it, um, especially given the troubled history, development history of the original Ant-Man, which, of course, was supposed to be Edgar Wright. I think that uh, this feels very much more like his own movie. And it benefits from that clear-cut vision that was in place seemingly from the very start. All right, everybody, brace yourself. We're talking about Captain Marvel for the next couple of minutes. I know this whole thing has been such a huge shit show as far as Captain Marvel really pissing off the, the white fanboys, I'm presuming, um, of which I am one, I guess. So I, I didn't have that problem whatsoever. I actually love Brie Larson. I think she's 
seems like such a cool person and she's so talented. I loved her in Room. I loved her in Scott Pilgrim. I loved her in pretty much everything I've seen her and I think she's been great. All the promotional stuff for this is, has been wonderful. And so I think people need to chill the heck out on Brie Larson because I loved her as Captain Marvel. I think there's a lot of dub, like gender bias and stuff that people are bringing, men are bringing to this movie um, specifically. And I thought that Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck did a, a great job bringing Carol Danvers to the big screen uh, with a lot of twists and turns as far as her origin, a lot of things from the comic books that they were that they were kind of um, doing their own spin on as far as Fury's scar, which is doesn't work for me as much as I would like. But with uh, the the, uh, the Marvel story, with um, Carol's Carol's uh, um, relationship with Jan Rog, with um, so much of so much of her her story has been convoluted over the course of the comic books in a way because there have been so many Captain Marvels, and you can hear me and Carrie Jones talk about that in an hour and a half long discussion uh, with the spoiler section, you know, kind of kept aside. But I'm being very vague on this one as much as I can in this review, just be in this mini review, just because it is I think still in theaters and I, I you know if someone for some reason hasn't seen it and is catching up to it right before Endgame, I highly recommend it. I put it probably. Uh, well, we're getting to, we'll get to that in a second, but I, I put it among the higher uh, films in the MCU for me, and uh, I think Brie Larson is is a, is a freaking delight here. So I I really like this film, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with her next, how she plays a role in the battle with uh, Thanos in Endgame, and uh, I think that we're going to see a lot more of Captain Marvel and Brie Larson in the MCU. So the haters better get used to it. So that brings us to Avengers Endgame, which I have no input on because I haven't seen it yet. So just to give you a kind of overview of my thoughts on the MCU, I feel like some of the bottom ones, the ones that most disappointed me or that feel the, the most lackluster, Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, Thor The Dark World, Age of Ultron, uh, the original Ant-Man, those are probably my bottom five. Then you have another tier that are all the ones that are kind of in the middle that I I like but don't really don't really love. Then I have my honorable mentions, Guardians Volume 2, Thor Ragnarok, Captain Marvel. That's like my six through eight, with my top five being, as I mentioned, Black Panther. And not in, well, Iron Man's also an honorable mention, too. I should throw that out there. With my top five being Black Panther, Captain America Winter Soldier, Captain America Civil War, Avengers, and Avengers Infinity War. So where will Endgame fit? So where will Endgame fit among all of that? I can't wait to find out. I'm definitely going to get a review episode up at some point in the near future, so keep your eyes peeled for that. In the meantime, prepare your bodies for a three-hour Avengers experience, and I'll see you on the other side. Good luck, Avengers! If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-L-K-E-D. Z-R-O-L-K-E-D. <laughs>